Today's hearing is about much more than the game of golf. It's about how a brutal, repressive regime can buy influence, indeed even take over a cherished American institution, to cleanse its public image. Today on Capitol Hill, a bipartisan group of lawmakers held a hearing to find the answer to one question. How could the Saudi Arabian government basically buy pro-golf? What is the amount of the Saudi investment that is going to be made? That has not been determined yet. That's Senator Richard Blumenthal, a Democrat from Connecticut. He's questioning a PGA tour official. Has there been any discussion of what that amount will be? It would be, uh, there's been discussions, it would be a significant amount. North of what one, are the amounts that have been discussed? North of $1 billion. The PGA Tour and the Saudi-backed Live Golf are planning to merge together. And it's a decision that stunned almost everyone. It's forced golf's top players and officials to confront uncomfortable issues, like the Saudi government's role in the murder of Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi. I don't condone human rights violations at all. I, I, I don't think it, I, I, nobody here does um, any, throughout the world. But despite their discomfort with Saudi involvement, some, like star golfer Phil Mickelson, who was paid millions by Liv, say the deal is the future of golf. I've also seen the good that the game of golf has done throughout history, and I believe that Live Golf is going to do a lot of good for the game as well. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm your guest host, Libby Casey. It's Tuesday, July 11th. Today, we're breaking down the biggest golf deal in history with sports columnist Sally Jenkins, and we're asking whether anyone has the power to stop it. So, Sally, you know, the PGA Tour shocked everyone when it announced, after a lot of fighting, that it would merge with this separate golf tour called Live Golf. And before we get into how that happened, can you give us some context of what Live Golf is, where it came from, and why it was so controversial? Live Golf is a breakaway experimental tour that was launched by Greg Norman, who uh, was a, you know, a great golfer in his own right many years ago. Um, who basically I think is kind of an insurgent uh, in the sport. And he coaxed Phil Mickelson, one of the big superstars of the PGA Tour, uh, into recruiting other players uh, to start this tour funded by the Saudi Public Investment Fund, uh, the sovereign uh, governmental fund of, of Saudi Arabia, for astronomical sums of money uh, to challenge the PGA Tour and the European Tour as uh, the global marketers of golf. So a lot of us think of it as this Saudi Golf League. How important is the Saudi Arabian government's funding of this? Well, it's everything. I mean, there's no other sponsor. They have no sponsors other than the Saudi Arabian Public Investment Fund to speak of. They have no uh, real media rights to speak of. The whole thing is being carried 100% by Saudi money, and it's taken millions upon millions of dollars to get the thing off the ground. And it's essentially an exhibition tour, to be frank with you. Uh, there's guaranteed money. They only play 54 holes. It doesn't bear much relationship to what the audience thinks of as competitive tournament golf. There was immediate bad blood between this new live creation and the PGA. So why was it so threatening to the PGA? Well, the PGA tour is essentially the membership. It's the players themselves. 
and they are uh, business partners. Basically, in order to be a member of the PGA Tour, you commit to playing a certain number of events per year if you qualify and to do work for the sponsors of the PGA Tour in exchange for the right to compete for prize money. And so it's a contract and it's a business agreement. And the players who defected to Live Golf to set up in direct competition to the PGA Tour uh, essentially, you know, violated their contracts and left the PGA Tour. Uh, their their sponsors were unhappy about it. Their their colleagues and competitors on the PGA Tour were unhappy about it because they essentially defected and launched a com- a, a so called competitor after having collected millions upon millions of dollars uh, over their careers from the PGA Tour. How common is it to have something like a state-sponsored golf league try to compete with the PGA Tour? Well, it's new. The Saudis have launched this effort. They're probably going to make inroads in other sports as well. It's called sports washing, where governments that have done untoward things on the global stage, they buy sports sponsorships or they become Olympic sponsors and so on in order to try to make the public, A, forget their transgressions, and to you know, establish international business ties when they might not be able to otherwise. But also when these governments and their sovereign funds engage in commercial agreements, it tends to do things like say, hobble the State Department in drawing red lines. So if there's enough commercial entanglement with other American interests and companies, it does make it more difficult for the State Department to do its business. I mean, obviously, Saudi Arabia's human rights record is abysmal, you know, whether you're a woman in Saudi Arabia. And of course, you know, every Washington Post colleague knows that Jamal Khashoggi, a, you know, American resident who was writing for The Washington Post, uh, was assassinated. And according to the CIA, the assassination was ordered by the head of the Saudi government himself, Mohammed bin Salman, by the government of Saudi Arabia that perpetrates really heinous acts Uh, on women, on homosexuals, uh, that is one of the great violators of human rights on the globe today. So that's a start. Uh, It's hard to encompass all of their human rights issues, but those would be the top three. So after all this concern was raised, some players still decided to essentially defect from the PGA Tour and join LIV. So how did the PGA react to their decision? Well, the PGA Tour had the the right to suspend them and bar them from entering PGA Tour events because they had violated their membership agreements. And that is what they did. When Phil Mickelson and Dustin Johnson and Brooks Kepka defected to live, the PGA Tour essentially said, you may no longer play in PGA Tour events. Uh, not only that, it exerted its influence to deny them, say, ranking points in the world golf rankings. And the players knew they were taking this risk when they did this. They knew that if they defected to this insurgent exhibition league, that it might jeopardize their ability to ever play on the PGA Tour again or to qualify for big events like, say, the Ryder Cup, which is the, it's kind of the big international competition, uh, team competition in golf. So, you know, publicly there is all this acrimony. There is some disgust at the players who decided to leave the PGA and take money from the Saudis. But then, Sally, at the beginning of June, there's this major surprise announcement that the PGA is merging with Liv. So what was the reaction within the golf community to this bombshell? 
Well, I mean, I think people were aghast and astounded because uh, the PGA Tour had been on Capitol Hill lobbying Congress for support and fending off live. And then they turn around and three guys who sat on the policy board of the PGA Tour, Jay Monahan, Jimmy Dunn, and George Herlihy, the commissioner, the chairman, and a single board member turn around and go into a London cigar bar and do a deal with the Saudis without consulting another human being on the face of the earth that's truly involved in PGA Tour golf. This is an opportunity we've never had before. And to have this capital at this point in time with the strength of this game, um, there's just, there's so much opportunity. And it's opportunity we have- They didn't consult their other policy tour directors I mean, they did it in total secrecy. Whether or not this framework agreement is going to be able to go forward is a really interesting question because I think that there is about to be significant pushback from the players and from the other directors on the PGA Tour policy board. That's my understanding is that get ready this week to see uh, some real pushback from the other interested parties in this deal. So do you have any insight into why the PGA Tour would want to merge with Liv? Two reasons, I think, caused the PGA Tour to entertain this notion. The first component of the deal was an end to antitrust litigation. Uh, There's some thought that the PGA Tour could have been vulnerable slightly on that issue if the PGA Tour was urging the major championships not to admit live players. Perhaps they were vulnerable on that sort of thing. But that, I don't believe, was really the driving force behind the agreement. I think the driving force behind the agreement was A, a power grab by these three men who are the only three people who were going to be assured of a role in governing golf going forward with the Saudis. And B, the PGA Tour was going to be in a position where it didn't have to worry about courting a lot of other sponsors to keep up with the purse sizes of the Live Tour and compete against this unlimited amounts of Saudi money. What would this deal actually mean for professional golf and what we experience as people who watch it? You know, the framework agreement is quite vague. So there's the professional golf aspect where it's run by these businessmen who sit on the PGA Tour policy board. And for three people on the PGA Tour policy board, Jay Monahan, Ed Hurley, and Jimmy Dunn, it was going to make life much easier. Uh, it was a magic bullet answer to a difficult commercial problem. It offered them access to this, you know, Saudi investment fund, and it put them in unique positions in the governance of the game. The players are a different matter altogether. The players were going to be at the beck and call of the Saudi public investment fund. So, for instance, if you were a PGA Tour player, conceivably, the Saudi public investment fund could tell you who could sponsor you and who couldn't. I think it was a a governance issue that was conceivably could cause real problems for PGA Tour players in terms of their liberty to court other sponsors. The the Saudi Public Investment Fund could tell them where they had to play, where they couldn't play. You know, all the things that golfers have been complaining about um, in terms of the PGA Tour restricting them in certain ways, I think are likely, if this deal were to go through, to be three times, four times worse. What's the fan reaction been? There are certain fans that will be aghast by just the you know, the smack of corruption from taking so much Saudi money, conceivably. Then there are some golf 
pure golf fans who want to see players like Phil Mickelson and Dustin Johnson and Brooks Kepka back in a main field alongside Rory McIlroy and Tiger Woods. They just want to see the game consolidated again, and they don't really care what the moral or financial issues are that, that get you there. So, I mean, I think there's probably, it depends on, you know, if you want to stick your hand in the sand and say, I just want sports to be all about sports and not about global affairs, then you probably don't care about the Saudi money issue. But if you care about human rights, I think you're fairly sickened. And also, the PGA itself was telling people to be sickened, right? Like, they were bringing up the human rights violations as a reason why Americans and Congress should be upset about this new golf tour. Yes, the PGA tour has really cost itself in terms of it, it now has a, a, a probably irreversible reputation for absolute hypocrisy. Uh, it has probably cost itself credibility on Capitol Hill. Uh, it is difficult to conceive of Jay Monahan, the commissioner of the PGA Tour, being able to go back uh, to Capitol Hill and argue with any sincerity in front of someone like, say, Senator Richard Blumenthal. Uh, I, I think they've cost themselves credibility with uh, large swaths of golf fans, but also large swaths of uh, governmental uh, agencies. So, Sally, what about the golfers who objected to joining Live because they were opposed to that Saudi Arabian government involvement and they were listening to the PGA Tour? What are they saying now? Well, I think that some of them want to be made whole. They're saying that those who were offered money by Live and chose not to go because they did not want to lose their PGA Tour membership, they were told by the PGA Tour, if you do this, you will not be able to play on this side of the fence ever again. Uh, only a year later for the PGA Tour to absolutely reverse itself. I think they feel that they suffered harm. They were loyal to their membership, their fellow players on the PGA Tour and their sponsors, and they were rewarded for that loyalty with this sort of betrayal in terms of absolutely ignoring the player input on this and, and probably ignoring any precept of good governance. And I think that they are going to want to know under what circumstances the defectors like Phil Mickelson are going to be allowed back on the PGA Tour. They are going to be absolutely irate if these players don't suffer real heavy penalty uh, for having damaged the game of golf the way they did. Is there any way that this deal doesn't go through and is actually stopped? I think there's tons of ways it doesn't go through. I think one way it may not go through is I think you may see in the coming week a movement of real revolt uh, among the players and some of the other people involved in the policymaking of global golf. Because set aside for a moment whether the Saudi deal framework agreement is a good deal or a bad deal, whether it's a viable commercial deal or not, set aside the merits of the deal. From a pure governance standpoint, the fact that three men could sign a deal committing all of golf to an agreement with the Saudis without consulting anyone else is a very bad governance issue for the PGA Tour, which I think is going to have to be addressed no matter what the merits and the specifics of the deal. After the break, Sally and I unpack why the PGA deal with Live Golf is drawing congressional attention. We'll be right back. Okay, Sally, so walk me through what concerns the U.S. government has over this potential deal. Well, I mean, there's something called the Clayton Act, which governs antitrust 
monopoly behavior. If you thought the PGA Tour was a monopoly, if it merges with Live Golf, it's a monopsony. There is zero competition. And so this is not just anti-competitive now, it's super anti-competitive. And I think the Justice Department may have an interest. And there's national security issues. For the Saudi public investment fund to lock, stock, and barrel try to purchase a cherished American institution, as uh, Senator Blumenthal called it, has repercussions and it may have in- cause entanglements that may make life more difficult for people at the State Department trying to grapple with Saudi Arabian uh, human rights abuses. So is this the future of professional golf for now? I mean, what options do players have? I do believe there is a potential for a walkout I do believe uh, that the players as a whole are deeply unhappy about the governance issue. Uh, They have a lot of questions about the merit of the deal. Uh, Some may uh, see more merit in the deal than others, but I think they are fairly unified in their sentiment that the way this deal came about may very well be intolerable from a player standpoint and from a player representative standpoint. Is there anything at this point, Sally, that the PGA could say or do or that the Saudi Public Investment Fund could say or do that would help the concerns of players? I do think there are a handful of things that can be done. The players want governance reform, is my understanding. And if someone can present a new governance structure that ensures that the PGA Tour player directors themselves are a majority of the new board, uh, that, that they will have voting leverage, that would be reassuring. The second thing is that the Saudi investment needs to be limited. It doesn't matter how many players you put on a PGA Tour board of directors. If the Saudis are the 100% sole investors who have first right of refusal to any other investors, the money will rule, right? That leverage is insurmountable. And so I think the thing to do is to cobble together Uh, some sort of agreement in which the Saudi investment will be a limited minority investment with other longtime PGA Tour sponsors invited in and given seats at the table. Look, American companies, like they set a 20% limit. I mean, that seems reasonable. The PGA Tour should probably behave like a sound, publicly held American company like an AT&T, you know, or something like that. I mean, that seems like a reasonable structure that would protect the PGA Tour's players and their leverage and their ability to govern their own lives and sport. Sally, you've said before that you're a lifelong fan of golf. So for you and other fans, how will watching this game feel different in the wake of how the PGA Live Golf deal was made, both in terms of what it means to have Saudi Arabia, this country with a terrible human rights record, be so heavily involved— but also to have this small group of men making the decisions for essentially all of golf. I'll speak for myself first. Since I am a longtime fan of golf, I went to my first British Open when I was 11 years old. My dad was a Hall of Fame golf writer. I really grew up on the game. You know, it's colored my perception of certain players. I look with real skepticism now at the PGA Tour's governance structure. I think that that has to be redone. The players are right And I think the PGA Tour's businesses need, the players probably ought to demand an audit, an independent audit. They probably ought to demand a much deeper dive into what these men on the PGA Tour's policy board have been doing with other business decisions. Are there other decisions that they just didn't know about? What other decisions have these guys been making without people's knowledge? 
Sally Jenkins, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you for having me. Sally Jenkins is a sports columnist for The Washington Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Arjun Singh. It was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Rena Flores. Thanks to Matt Rennie. If you love the show, help other people discover it by leaving a rating on Spotify or a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I'm Libby Casey. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. 